Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that focuses on the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This week is about a Turkish pirate who helped Suleiman the Magnificent and the Ottoman Empire expand west, ended up a great admiral, and essentially built the Turkish navy. Before we go on, you may have noticed that I skipped the regular cold open to the podcast. I was getting a little tired of it, but if you liked it and want it back, let me know. You can email me at almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com, find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot, or go to the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. As always, maps and images from this and all the episodes can be found on the webpage as well. So, without further ado, this is Hayred and Barbarossa, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Hayred and Barbarossa was born on the island of Lesbos, a traditionally and currently Greek island, just about 10 miles off the coast of modern Turkey. It's not far from the Dardanelles, the strait ships come through to get to the Mediterranean from Istanbul. You wouldn't miss the island if you were traveling south to the Levant or Egypt. He was born about 1478, which means that Istanbul was no longer Constantinople. The Turks had captured the formerly great city in 1453, which had been in serious decline for a couple centuries thanks in no small part to Enrico Dandolo. The world was going through some pretty significant changes in the latter half of the 15th century. Besides the final destruction of the Byzantines, Western Europe, including countries with exotic names like England, Portugal, Norway, Denmark, France, and Sweden, was finally emerging as a center of world power. The Republic of Venice was still going strong, and it controlled territory up and down the Adriatic, whereas Genoa had declined significantly and was essentially part of France. To the east, Poland and Lithuania were ruled by the same man, Casimir IV, and Poland was becoming one of the major European powers. The Grand Duchy of Moscow was finally shaking off the Mongol supremacy. Spain had just united, and in 1492, the other big thing it did was expel all the non-Christians. Most of them went to the Maghreb, modern Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya. The Muslim world was far from united anymore. The Maghreb was made up of a multitude of little city-states. The Mameluk Sultanate ruled Egypt and the Levant. The Ottoman Turks ruled Greece and Anatolia, while a separate Turkic tribal federation with the spectacular name the Federation of the White Sheep held the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, as well as western Persia. The emperor founded by Timur, or Tamerlane, barely held on in eastern Persia. Further east, Khanate still dominated Central Asia. In India, the Delhi Sultanate was shrinking, as other kingdoms asserted their independence. But the Ming Dynasty was in its golden age in China. Japan was entering the Sengoku period, when civil war divided the country for over a century. In Southeast Asia, the Malacca Sultanate, a maritime trade-based kingdom founded by Paramasawara a century earlier, was ascendant. To the south, the Mali Empire of West Africa was starting to weaken, while one of its dependent states was growing into what would become the Songhai Empire. 
The Ethiopian Empire vied for control of the region around the Horn of Africa with the Adal Sultanate. The Aztecs and the Incas were the big powers in the Western Hemisphere, soon to be almost completely destroyed by those aforementioned Western Europeans. A spiritual leader known as the Great Peacemaker united five nations in North America into what would be known as the Iroquois Confederacy. And returning to the Mediterranean, Hayreddin was born on the island of Lesbos, which had been captured by the Turks in 1462. His father was part of the attack as a Janissary, one of 20,000 elite Ottoman soldiers. The Janissaries were essentially abducted as children from the Turks' Christian subjects, converted to Islam, and raised as soldiers. Abducted is an accurate, but also somewhat misleading word. It was more like a tax, you know, send us a certain number of boys each year as tribute. And while it was certainly resisted in some places, Janissaries led good enough lives that in some regions families tried to bribe officials to take their kids. Some land on Lesbos was the reward for participating in the capture, and he retired to the island as a faithful servant of the Sultan and a faithful Muslim. Sources say his wife, from Lesbos, was the widow of a local Greek Orthodox priest. The circumstances that led to her widowhood may stem from the said capture of the island, but that's only speculation. They did have six children, four boys and two girls. Dad was a potter, and living on the island, his kids were exposed to the sea very early. His trade as a potter led him to the sea to help sell his wares. His boys, Ishak, Oruk, Ilias, and Hayreddin, were also quite familiar with the sea. Actually, he wasn't born Hayreddin, so let's get into the whole name situation now. He was called Barbarossa by Europeans, which is Italian for red beard, except he didn't have a red beard. This, it seems, was a name inherited from his brother, Oruk, who did. Except Oruk was also known as Papa Oruk, or in Turkish, Baba Oruk, which sounds like Barbarossa. And that's probably actually how the Europeans got the name. So the non-red-bearded, non-Baba Hayreddin's birth name was Kizir, or Hizir, depending on where you're from. At some point, he was given an honorific name, Kir ad-Din in Arabic, or Her ad-Din in Turkish. There were also titles attached to the end of the name, Pasha, meaning High Turkish Official, and Race, meaning Sea Captain, or Race Pasha, meaning Admiral, or... No, I think that's it. Anyway, I'm going to call him Hayreddin throughout this whole thing to try to limit the confusion on names to the few sentences preceding this one. They were a typical poor but not destitute family. They all pitched in to help the father. At some point, probably in the 1490s, Oruk and another brother were on a boat, probably involved in trade, although it's possible it was something more nefarious. We just don't know. Anyway, they spotted a galley of the Knights of St. John, which was a powerful group of warriors based on the island of Rhodes, and they tried to make a run for it. They were chased down, and their ship was taken. Oruk became a galley slave, and the other brother was killed. A few sources have it that it was Ishak, although most say it was Ilias. Galley slaves are pretty much just what you imagine. Galleys had dozens of oars, and there were benches filled with people that had to row them. At that time, the Christian navies usually used captured Muslims to do this, and the Arabs and Turks used captured Christians. You could call them POWs, and some essentially were, 
but many of them weren't really involved in any warfare until a boat showed up and threw them in irons. Oruk eventually got free. Perhaps the sponsor of his ship or his father paid for his ransom. Whether it was before or after this adventure, both Oruk and Hayreddin shifted from merchant shipping to privateering. Essentially, with the Venetians and the Greeks and the Knights and the Genoese and the random pirates, and who knows who else remaining in the Aegean Sea and beyond, the Turks didn't mind if some of their sailors did a little raiding in the name of the Sultan. This was essential to keep traffic flowing from one of the greatest shipping centers in the world, the Golden Horn in the city of Istanbul, without fear of constant harassment. At some point, the brothers moved on from the eastern Mediterranean to the west. Some sources say they were employed by the Sultan's son, Prince Korkut. When Korkut's brother Selim overthrew their father in 1512, Korkut became persona non grata. So they left. Now, they may have been employed by Korkut, but they were hanging out in the Maghreb way before 1512, so that doesn't work out for me. Ernel Bradford, in The Sultan's Admiral, say that they were definitely there by 1504 at the latest, but doesn't really explore how or why they ended up there. So, I'll give you one purely speculative possibility of my own that I haven't seen discussed. From 1499 to 1503, the Ottomans were at war with the Venetians. But the Venetians called upon the other Christian nations to help against the Turks and got some help from the French. In 1501, not for the first time, Venetian sailors and French knights went to go besiege a city together. That city happened to be Mytilene, the large harbor city on Lesbos. This could have had something to do with their departure, either because they were cut off from trading or because they couldn't do anything with 80 ships besieging their home port. So maybe that's why it was Go West, young man, for the brothers, with Oruk as their leader. In 1504, Oruk and his brothers captured two galleys in the water off of northwestern Italy, near Corsica. This included a massive papal flagship, and that's when their careers really kicked off. They brought their captured goods and slaves to Tunis on the North African coast, where they had worked out a deal with the local sultan. He would give them a safe harbor, and they would give him a portion of the spoils from their raiding. Tunis, located next to the site of ancient Carthage, is situated on the eastern end of that northern landmass of Africa that extends into the Mediterranean and holds the Atlas Mountains. From there, the land dives south into modern-day Libya, not surprisingly, it is a very good spot to access all of the western Mediterranean and sits across the sea under 150 miles from the western Sicilian port of Marsala, port referring to the harbor, Marsala referring to the name of the city, neither referring in this case explicitly to wine. It was a good time to be a pirate in those waters. Ferdinand, husband of Isabella, not only united Spain under his kingdom, he also ruled over Sicily and the southern part of Italy, the Kingdom of Naples. They were bringing back all sorts of precious metals from the New World and were sailing into the Mediterranean throughout their kingdom. France was not a great naval power, but Genoa still did a significant amount of maritime trade and fighting in the area. And the next few years were good for the brothers. 1505 was the first year that the Europeans start recording attacks of pirates from the Barbary coast, and... No, it wasn't named after the Barbarossas. It was named for the Berber people who populated it. By about 1510, you could say the fellows were rich, and their fleet was up to eight ships. It's unclear if they were still operating out of Tunis. 
Bradford, as well as the New Cambridge History of Islam, say that's the year they moved into the Spanish stronghold on the island of Jerba after the local commander died. But other sources say the Spanish, which we know had some success taking other cities like Algiers and Tripoli around 1510, were going after Jerba next. The Spanish garrisoned as many places as possible in the region to keep the shipping lanes open. It wasn't colonization in the way we think of the Spanish doing it, for most cities at least. It was more like a garrisoned fort outside the city. These pañons were fortresses built on rocky heights overlooking the water with cannons sometimes pointed right at the city. And as long as the rulers there paid tribute to Spain and the corsairs weren't going in and out, then the Spanish kind of left them alone. One of these, the Peñón de Vélez de la Gomera, is still a Spanish North African possession today. Whether it was in 1510 or perhaps 1512 after the Barbarossa brothers had already arrived, The expedition to Jerba was a disaster for Spain, and many died trying to take the fortress. They were all driven off. Auruk and Hayreddin probably took part in this engagement. Obviously, it's all a bit unclear. In 1512, we're pretty sure about the date on that one, the ruler of Bougie asked for help in turning back the Spanish who had attacked the city. He said that if Auruk would lead an assault by sea, he'd attack with his forces that were hiding in the countryside. Bougie was on the Algerian coast, up from their current base on Jerba, so it was closer to the Spanish shipping routes. It was also a good harbor, built on the Roman city of Salde. Oruk and Hayreddin accepted the invitation. After all, it was a better spot for a base of operations. They bombarded the city for a week before the walls of the fortress began to give way. Rather than wait, the brave but perhaps a bit impulsive Oruk ordered the attack. He and the Berbers from the mountains combined forces to retake the city. The Spanish garrison didn't fire until the enemy was near, scrambling up the rubble to try and get into the breach they had made. The attackers were hit hard, including Oruk. He lost his left arm above the elbow, and the siege melted away. The Berbers fled, and the brothers' troops retreated onto their boats. Hayreddin sent a swift crew of experienced rowers to Tunis in order to get Oruk back as quickly as possible. The other eleven boats of the fleet took their time in returning and picked off a wealthy, jewel-laden Genoese galley on their way home, making up for some of the disaster at Bougie. The Genoese, however, were still a formidable naval power and had just about enough of those pesky Barbary corsairs. Towards the end of the summer of 1512, they sent a dozen galleys under the command of Andrea Doria, yeah, the famous one, to go destroy the pirate's cove in Tunis. They appeared there and surprised the brothers. Oruk was still convalescing, so it was up to Hayreddin to lead the defense of his fleet. But he didn't have sailing galleys. They were mostly galleots. Smaller, lighter versions. Good for quick raids. Not as much for a full naval battle. The first thing Hayreddin did was scuttle half his ships, knowing they already were in trouble before the battle began, and he didn't want Doria to make off with every one of his boats. They engaged at first, but realized they were toast, so they beached their ships and ran. The Genoese destroyed the fort guarding the harbor, and took the six beached ships, as well as that Genoese vessel Hayreddin had captured earlier in the year. Hayreddin decided to avoid all the nasty looks from the sultan and from his brother. He raised the six ships he had sunk, took some slaves and materials with him, and went back to Jerba. 
By the time Ulrich was feeling well enough to meet up with him there, three more ships had been constructed. It was his first demonstration that not only did he possess the leadership capabilities that a commander should have, but he was also quite intelligent. Think about it. From before the battle began, Hayredden seemed to have ascertained that he couldn't win. Rather than charging headlong, he essentially hid half his fleet and then left the other half as spoils so that he and his men could escape. 1513 was recorded as a year without much activity from the Barbary pirates, which suggests that Oruk and Hayredden were licking their wounds after the disaster at Tunis, but also that there wasn't much Corsair activity outside of their group. Perhaps the strongest and most capable captains had already gravitated towards them. Oruk had one thing in mind, though, and this time it wasn't booty. He was a pirate, so he thought about booty, but this time he wanted revenge. And probably his armory attached, but that wasn't happening. Anyway, in the summer of 1514, he led the men back to Bougie to retake the city. Once again, the local Berber king was ready to help, but once again the attack failed. This time, the siege was broken up by a combination of factors. Harvest season came, so the Berbers started to return to their fields, and additional Spanish showed up in the harbor, making victory impossible. Rather than return to Jerba, the island down south from Tunis, closer to Tripoli than the islands of the western Mediterranean, they wanted to stay on the Algerian coast. Tunis was probably not as welcoming after the whole Spanish attack thing last time, so they wound up in a small port named Jigeli. It's located about halfway in between Tunis and Algiers. Today the town is called Jigel. It was sparsely populated with no real allegiance to any sultan, so it was a good spot. It was also highly defensible, and the Turks were sure to treat the inhabitants of the city well. They were welcomed, and it probably dawned on them that this would be a very good base of operations for the future. In November of 1514, in a period of calm weather, the now 12 ships of the Barbarossa Armada went out to do some work. Bradford describes the scene as the ships went into the sea. Quote, they spread themselves across the main shipping lane between Sicily, Sardinia, and the Balearic Islands in Spain. It took them nearly three days to reach their chosen stations, nearly 125 miles north of Jigeli. It is likely that they cruised about five miles apart, moving eastward into the Sicily-Sardinia Strait. Twelve galleys could easily cover a sea lane of 60 miles, unquote. They had cast their net, and they ended up pulling in three merchantman ships. They brought them back to Jigeli and distributed much of the loot among the inhabitants of the city. The city, which was small but had managed to stay independent from the surrounding leaders vying for power, named Oruk as their sultan. Soon after, Oruk and Hayredden got into a conflict with a neighboring tribe and won. And soon the other tribes of the surrounding mountains were pledging loyalty to Sultan Oruk. He was less of a pirate now and more a leader of a small kingdom. Not that they stopped attacking ships, looting them, and selling their inhabitants off to slavery or using them to power their oars. But now this isn't really any different than what the Venetians, Genoese, or Spanish were doing either. With a little land to their name, the brothers had become legitimate. In 1516, King Ferdinand of Spain finally died and, as whenever a long-time ruler dies, it left Spain in a temporary state of inaction. The people of Algiers, as well as their leader, Sheikh Salim al-Tuni, thought it would be a good time to expel the Spanish from the Peñon outside the city, and called on Uruk for help. 
Algiers was south of the Balearic Islands, a nice little raiding spot of Spanish maritime provinces. Mallorca, the biggest one, was due north of Algiers, as was Ibiza if they wanted to do some clubbing. Of Spanish heads, that is. On the way there, though, he took the opportunity to capture another city. This one, called Cherchel, was occupied by a fellow corsair. Cherchel was another old Carthaginian port that became the capital of the Roman province of Mauritania Caesariensis, under the name Caesarea. It appears Oruk tricked this poor fellow into meeting him before he captured him and had him killed. Only then did they move on to Algiers. But, despite a siege of several weeks, they were unable to dislodge the Spanish from their fort. So Oruk just set himself up in the city, walking in like a big shot who had just won a great battle. Salim felt threatened and decided he might need to get rid of Oruk, possibly with the help of the Spanish. But his plan was uncovered, and Oruk had him and the leading conspirators killed before declaring himself the Sultan of Algiers. The Spanish were now more determined than ever to rid the Mediterranean of these Barbary pirates. They sent a fleet to take the city of Algiers in the spring of 1517, but the landing party was destroyed and the ships went back to Spain. A city named Tennis, further east down the Algerian coast, possibly at the behest of the Spanish, massed an army to fight Oruk and Hayreddin, but Oruk's trained Turk soldiers made quick work of them and he took that city as well. An opportunity presented itself when the inland capital of Tlemcen, a Berber kingdom with many refugees from Spain, requested help. This time it was to rid themselves of their sultan. Tlemcen was situated south and west of Oran, a major fortified Spanish possession in the region. Surrounding Oran would be a huge thing. So he moved quickly from Tennis straight to Tlemcen. He conquered this with ease. Keep in mind that, while we are talking about the exploits of famed sea captains, they had Turkish soldiers on these boats. They might have been the best soldiers of the time. They were some of the best marksmen in the world, and their cannons and arquebuses may have outclassed anything they were up against. Hayreddin stayed in Algiers, which had become basically the capital of their sultanate, so it was perhaps through his diplomacy that Oruk was recognized by the Ottomans as the governor of Algiers, but also as the head of the entire western Mediterranean. The sultans of the kingdoms of Fez and Tunis to his west and east had to recognize his authority or risk Ottoman reprisals. But the Spanish didn't really care who they were, they just wanted them out. They sent an army of 10,000 veterans to take Tlemcen in the spring of 1518. Waiting for additional troops from the Sultan of Fez that arrived weeks too late, Uruk and his 1,500 soldiers marched back towards Algiers, but he never made it. The Spanish intercepted him and it was a rout. Uruk and probably brother Ishak were killed in the battle. Hayreddin was left in the capital, the only surviving brother of a man who essentially carved out most of Algeria into a kingdom and then handed it to the Ottomans. After the defeat of Uruk by the Spanish, many of the Turks were ready to leave Algiers. The Spanish had a massive army nearby, and they still held the Peñon of Algiers. But Hayreddin didn't run, and the Spanish didn't attack. They went back to their base in Oran, maybe thinking the threat of the Corsairs was eliminated. Hayreddin made the most of this reprieve. He reinforced his garrisons, reinforced alliances with the surrounding Berbers, and reinforced his relationship with Istanbul. He sent a ship there, and with the Ottoman Empire busy conquering Egypt, it made sense to just keep him on as governor, 
He was now the official leader of the Ottoman Empire in that region, in essence beholden only to the Sultan. In 1519, the new Spanish king, who would eventually be known as Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and have Spain as well as most of Central Europe as part of his kingdom, sent a new expedition to take out the Ottoman pirates. An armada of over 200 ships, including ships and troops from Spain, Genoa, the Papal States, Germany, and the Knights Hospitaller, was gathered. But instead of embarking in early summer when the weather was usually good, delays forced them to sail at the end of August. That, of course, is called foreshadowing. A huge storm blew across the coast just as the invasion fleet was landing. The first line of troops were quickly slaughtered by the Turkish troops. Many more ships were broken apart in the storm, and survivors washed ashore to be captured and enslaved or ransomed. The attack was a disaster for Spain, and Algeria was secured for Hayreddin. That year, he also captured the city once known as Hippo Regius, today called Anaba, but at the time called Bone. This strengthened his control over most of coastal Algeria, although over the next decade, the Spanish fought for control of the coastal cities. The Ottoman Sultan Selim I died in 1520, and it's possible that Hayreddin lost control of the city of Algiers for a few years, after his support from Istanbul dissipated around 1524. The new Sultan, Suleiman, to eventually be called Suleiman the Magnificent, may not have yet realized Hayreddin's value. The governor of Algeria seems to have moved his base of operations back to Jijeli for the time being. The back and forth continued, but throughout this era, a back and forth of conflicts between the Habsburg Empire that Charles V ruled over and the Ottomans continued as well. In 1529, Suleiman the Magnificent launched an invasion of Hungary and Austria, which culminated in the First Siege of Vienna. He wanted Hayreddin to distract the Spanish in the west, keeping them from bolstering the empire's forces. He sent 2,000 Janissaries to the Barbary coast, and Hayreddin took advantage of the troops by retaking Algiers. He also finally destroyed the Pagnon. From that point on, Algiers was his base of operations in the region. Throughout these years, he continued to raid the coast throughout the western Mediterranean. Sicily, Sardinia, the southwest coast of Italy, southern Spain, as well as the Balearic Islands were all in his targets. He also pulled tens of thousands of Moriscos, the Muslims living in Spain that had been forced to convert to Christianity, over to North Africa. His ship captains weren't just Turks either. They were Muslims from throughout the Mediterranean, they were outlaw Christians, or disgruntled ones at least, and they were Jews expelled from Spain during the Reconquista and the Inquisition. One of Hayreddin's most successful captains was Sinan Reis, from a Spanish-Jewish family that fled, likely after the Alhambra Decree which expelled them. In 1531, an attack on Shershell, led by Andrea Doria, now allied with Charles V, was repulsed, but the following year the legendary Genoese captain was on the other side of the Mediterranean. He captured several Greek cities. When the Ottomans came back in 1533 to institute a blockade on one of these cities with a massive fleet, Doria returned and defeated them. It demonstrated Doria's skills as a commander, but to Suleiman, it was also a good indication of the poor state of Ottoman naval affairs. And so, that year, Hayreddin received an ambassador from Istanbul, ordering him to go visit the Sultan. 
he left a deputy in Algeria and set out for the Golden Horn. He was named the commander-in-chief of the Ottoman navy, so so obviously they were in rough shape with their situation there, but also Hayreddin was pretty much considered the best sea captain of his day. He then set to work in the capital building a fleet, and in doing so he completely turned the course of naval warfare in the Mediterranean for a generation. The Turks were indomitable warriors, but they were not men of the sea. When they needed people to crew boats, they'd go grab shepherds from the mountains. They didn't have full-time sailors in the navy. But they ruled over Greece and the Aegean. They certainly had the resources of shipwrights and sailors. They just needed someone who understood how to coordinate it all. Building a maritime kingdom with the bulk of its economy based on naval attacks from scratch and growing it to the biggest threat to all ships in half of the Mediterranean was probably evidence that he would be able to do this. Hayredden spent the winter living in the arsenal, watching over the training and building of the new fleet. By the summer of 1534, he had a massive fleet ready to go. So they went. This time, truly on official business, he went right back to what he was best at, attacking the Holy Roman Empire, enslaving Christians, sinking enemy ships, you know, back to work. They sailed through the Aegean, right by many of the islands still inhabited by Christians, who mostly ran up to the tops of the highest hills and proceeded to soil themselves for the entirety of the time the ships were in view. But the fleet kept going, sailing around the heel of Italy to the city of Reggio, right across the Strait of Messina from Sicily. In Reggio, any pants crapping was warranted, as the Turks raided the city and captured the young men and women to sell into slavery, and did all that looting and terrible stuff people do when they sack a city. He continued his attacks on Charles V's vassal, the Kingdom of Naples, devastating the city of Fondi. Apparently there, he was trying to kidnap a famous Italian noblewoman for Suleiman, but she managed to escape. But filling the sultan's coffers and harem, and his enemy's underpants, were not his only aims. After sending some ships home filled with the spoils of war, he turned to Tunis, the place where he and Oruk got their start. The Sultan of Tunis, Muli Hassan, fled at the sight of the invasion force, and he was not well liked in the city, so they put up no resistance. Hayreddin spent the winter of 1534 fortifying the city, but he sent so many of Suleiman's troops and ships back, he wasn't really able to defend it. Charles V, on the other hand, had to deal with the increased threat in the region. With the possibility of a huge Ottoman fleet in Tunis, led by the most feared pirate, now a naval commander, something had to be done. A combined fleet that one source says was 600 ships in total between the Spanish, Italian, and German troops, as well as the Knights Hospitaller, was assembled. They destroyed the Galetta, Tunis's massive fortified harbor, after a fierce battle in which the Knights of Malta distinguished themselves. But Hayreddin had already planned his escape once he got wind of the size of the forces enemies were mustering. The Turks fled to the port city of Bone, where he had sent several ships before the battle to keep them safe. The Allies were too busy looting and destroying the city to pay attention. And they continued looting and destroying the city for days. It's said that 30,000 Tunisians, not the Turks who were their actual enemies, mind you, were killed, and that Charles V moved his headquarters miles away to get away from the stench of the dead. Now, if you were the Turks at this point, you had a few choices. 
One, you could go to Algiers, fortify it in case the coalition attacks there next, and send someone to get additional forces. Alternatively, you could just head back east and abandon the now-shaking Algerian holdings for the moment. When the alliance had broken up, retake what you can. Hayreddin, though, was a pirate, so he said screw all that, and he took his defeated troops northwest. He sailed up to the Balearics, to the northeastern island of Menorca, and attacked the town of Mahone. They captured 6,000 people, sacked the city, raided their armaments, and destroyed their fortifications. A brilliant move, and one that Charles never countered by next trying to take Algiers. Maybe he couldn't get his troops to move on there, maybe he didn't think he needed to, but whatever the reason, the Turks still had their client state in western North Africa. After 1535, the Turks had lost Tunis, but they kept most all of Algeria, and the Spanish and Italian coastal cities had no reason to believe they were safe from attack. At that point, the Turkish commander of naval forces went back to Istanbul, again leaving Algeria in the charge of one of his lieutenants. Despite the loss of Tunis, which had only been in Ottoman possession for a year, he was returning with treasure and slaves and more victories than defeats. In 1536, the Sultan's Grand Vizier, Ibrahim Pasha, was executed after, let's say, serious court intrigue. He was from the Dalmatian coast and was partial to Venice. The Venetian Republic and the Ottoman Empire were pretty easy natural enemies fighting over the eastern Mediterranean. The only thing that probably kept them from constant war was the fact that Venice was much more concerned with keeping maritime trade routes open through control of coastal towns, while the Turks were, like most empires, interested in gaining territory, subjects, and all that comes with those things. But Ibrahim was also a big reason the uneasy peace was a peace. As the Grand Vizier, he helped influence policy enough to the Ottomans that he kept them from all-out war with the Venetians that he admired so much. But after he was gone, there was nothing keeping the Sultan from setting his sights on his nearest, most powerful enemy, and that meant that's where Hayreddin would be setting his sights. The Venetians, in the meantime, had been ignoring the peace somewhat. Not necessarily a stated policy, but they continued to allow some of their captains to raid Ottoman territory. Also in 1536, Andrea Doria hit the Ottomans hard. He captured 10 Turkish ships, sold their crew into slavery, then proceeded to go to the west coast of Greece and take out a Turkish fleet. He took his haul from that encounter to the island of Paxos, north of Corfu. This was not pleasing to the Sultan or Hayreddin, who spent the winter building up the Turkish fleet even more in preparation for a massive invasion. Suleiman laid siege to the island of Corfu, although he wasn't able to take it and eventually withdrew. But Hayreddin laid waste to the Venetian holdings in the Aegean and the Ionian seas on either side of Greece. Bradford points out that part of the reason Hayreddin was doing so much darn raiding over these years is he was building a gigantic fleet. Wooden sailors, sure, he had that, but slaves to row the oars? He had to go out and acquire them. It was said that he returned to Istanbul in late 1537 with 400,000 gold pieces. In 1538, Hayreddin again emerged from the Golden Horn. He reminded the islands of the Aegean that he had already conquered about the tribute payments they promised. He conquered other ones. He also linked up with some 20 galleys from Egypt and other parts of the empire. 
His top commanders were with him, including Sinan, whom I mentioned earlier, as well as Salah Reis, Dragut, Murat Reis, men who ended up becoming admirals in the Sultan's navy over the next decades. All the while, a massive sea battle was setting up. Pope Paul III created another holy league to deal with the ramifications of the Ottoman successes of 1537. Andrea Doria would lead a united fleet of Genoese, Venetians, Spaniards, and troops from the Papal States, as well as the Knights of Malta. They brought together a combined fleet of around 200 ships to Corfu, right on the modern border of Greece and Albania, to await an attack. By September of 1538, the Holy League's fleet was ready to go, with Andrea Doria once again in charge. The two enemies met outside of the Strait of Preveza, a bit south of Corfu on the Greek coast. The strait separated the Ionian Sea to the west from the Gulf of Acta, and the major promontory in between was called Actium. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's the namesake of the sea battle where Agrippa led Octavian's defeat of Mark Antony. Hayredden got there first and got to the other side of the strait, into the Gulf of Acta. He was outnumbered and the protection of the bay was invaluable to his ability to choose how and when they'd fight. Doria tried to draw them out of the gulf, sailing south. But after several days when the wind had died down and the Allied Christian fleet had drifted tens of miles apart, out of tight formation, the Turks streamed out of the gulf and attacked. It was a surprise, the outnumbered Ottomans coming out on the offensive, and it worked. Not only was Doria slow to react, but his mixed fleet couldn't move together well. Galleys, with their oarsmen, moved at a different pace. The large sail galleons that were just coming into play needed the wind to help them get to their targets. It appears he meant to draw the Ottomans out to an open sea battle, which is why he was sailing south. But there's no real explanation why, once Hayredden and his ships came out, he didn't turn his fleet and engage. It's said that it took three hours for the Genoese admiral to attack, despite his commanders begging him to do something. Doria wasn't just slow, he was reluctant to move. Maybe it was because he wasn't used to commanding this kind of mixed fleet, or that nobody could really effectively do so. There is also speculation that he wasn't too dismayed to see the initial attacks on the Venetian boats, his rivals and enemies for most of his 70 years as a Genoese sailor. Straggling in the back of the fleet was the massive Galleon of Venice, a sailing ship loaded with cannons. Hayredden set after this ship, but the cannon fire was too great. The captain, Alessandro Condomiero, distinguished himself in this engagement. The Ottomans withdrew out of range from his ship after significant damage to their ships and loss of life. But outside of this small setback, the day went to Hayredden. The Ottomans sunk 10 of the enemy's galleys and captured over 30 more. At the end of the day, Andrea Doria took his fleet north to Corfu before returning home. It was a rout and a massive victory in one of the three biggest sea battles of that entire century. Hayredden returned to Istanbul a conquering hero. Suleiman ordered celebrations in his honor. But Charles V was not ready to give up. He launched yet another massive force in 1541, this time in an attempt to take Algiers. It is said that 25,000 troops and 500 ships were launched, and the invasion force landed in late October. October, of course, was right in the middle of bad weather season, and the rains came. The Europeans were completely routed. 
Sources say that 8,000 soldiers and over 150 ships were lost. It was so devastating that there was a glut in the slave market for years. Spain and the Holy Roman Empire remained in conflict with the Turks, but another massive attack wasn't happening. Algeria was established, and the Turks were ascendant in the Mediterranean for decades. Hayreddin continued his career as the High Admiral, but there were few major engagements left. He was sent as the Sultan's representative in 1543 to France of all places. The king there, Francis I, was a bit nervous about being completely surrounded by his Habsburg rival Charles V. Their conflict was playing out in Italy, among other places, and Francis allied with the Ottomans, much to the dismay of the Pope and the other Europeans. The Ottoman-French alliance was actually formalized in 1536, and Hayreddin raided Charles's holdings in the region, at times with French assistance, for many of those years. He famously wintered in Toulon from 1543 to 1544, helping Francis take Nice. The alliance came and went over the next few years, but it changed the Ottoman Empire's standing in Europe. It became a participant in the European power struggle, as opposed to just the enemy from the east. Hayreddin himself returned to Istanbul and retired. He died in 1546 in his palace on the Bosporus, and remains a hero to the Turks today. Ernel Bradford, in the preface to his biography in which he uses the Arabic names, writes, quote, The Barbarossas, and in particular Kereddin, by far the greater of the two, were men of constructive violence. They fought their enemies and destroyed their cities and shipping in order to create a new kingdom on the North African coast. Whereas the Genoese admiral, Andrea Doria, left behind him little but a name written on the forgetful waters of the Mediterranean, Kereddin established a kingdom, organized a fleet, and originated a dockyard system that was to serve the Ottoman Empire efficiently for many years. He changed the balance of power at seas so effectively that he was largely responsible for the massive expansion of that empire during the reign of the Sultan Suleiman. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast at gmail, find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot, or go to the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. And of course, maps and images from this and all the episodes can be found on the website as well. Join me next time when we move forward a few more centuries and move north to highlight a man who helped defend his kingdom, as well as some of his rival kingdoms, from the Ottoman threat. <laughs>